Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and today we're going to talk about Afghanistan. Two weeks ago, American troops departed Bagram, the biggest military base in the country. Over the past 20 years of U.S. military operations in Afghanistan, it's seen hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops rotate through. U.S. forces left at night without telling the Afghan army's base commander. Afghan soldiers report finding the sprawling and once bustling compound quiet with the electricity switched off. Thousands of trucks stood on the deserted tarmac without their keys. Is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army. Do I trust the Taliban? No. But I trust the capacity of the Afghan military. Since President Biden announced in April that U.S. troops would pull out of Afghanistan, they and NATO forces have left quickly. The U.S. withdrawal was part of a deal that the U.S. struck with the Taliban in February 2020. In return for the U.S. pledging to pull out, the Taliban promised to stop Afghanistan being used for plotting terrorist attacks abroad, and they committed to enter talks with the Afghan government. As U.S. troops have left, media outlets report sweeping Taliban gains, particularly in the north, far from the Taliban's traditional southern strongholds. The Taliban are on the march and gaining territory at an astonishing rate. The Afghan government is under constant attack from the Taliban and is struggling to hold on to its territory. This past weekend saw some of the militants' largest gains On yet. Tuesday, the Islamist rebels captured Afghanistan's main border crossing with its northern... Today we're going to talk to Laurel Miller, Crisis Group's Asia director, and Andrew Watkins, our Afghanistan expert about what's happening in Afghanistan and how it's being viewed from Washington. Both have worked for years on Afghanistan. Laurel is a senior U.S. diplomat and Andrew for the U.N. and humanitarian organizations, in addition to a lot of research and writing both of them have done. Laurel, Andrew, hi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Andrew, could we 
start by uh, you telling us a little bit about what's happened over the, 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 the past few weeks. Obviously, media reports are, are full of these sort of stories of the Taliban really making sort of quite dramatic gains across part of the country. Is, is that accurate? Sure. Thanks, Richard. A development that began as a trickle of uh, shifts in territorial control across the country really does appear to have turned into a cascade as independent monitors around the country now report that roughly 200 out of Afghanistan's 400-odd districts have been overrun by the Taliban. It's not entirely clear at this stage whether or not that means the Taliban is in full control of these areas or even what it means for a militant insurgency that often acts as a guerrilla force to be in control of territory. But what we do know is that the Afghan government is no longer in control of these spaces. So, Andrew, when you say 200 out of 400 districts, obviously that sounds like a lot. Could you tell us something about the districts that the Taliban are taking over? They're mostly in the countryside, right? Even if even if they're encircling some provincial capitals. No, that's correct. It's an important distinction. Um, the Afghan government remains in control of all 34 of Afghanistan's provincial capitals. Uh, but that's a term that is almost meaningless. There's so much variety in what a provincial capital is. In some provinces of the country, that's little more than a village where you have provincial level government facilities and staff. In other places, it's a provincial capital can be one of the most major cities of Afghanistan, substantial regional trading hub. Um, the Afghan government remains in control of all 34 of these provincial capitals and of all major urban areas. But the Taliban have only strengthened what was already a threatening encirclement of many of these capitals including some of the medium-sized cities. Uh, for years, dating back at least to 2015, the Taliban have successfully overrun more than one provincial capital, and they have also done so in the past several months. Taliban fighters have made it into certain sections of a city or have even fought for control over outskirts of some of these cities. The Afghan government's hold overpopulation centers in parts of the country is tenuous, but what we've seen, whether we're talking about urban areas or we're talking about more rural stretches of the countryside, is much more of an extension of what we've been tracking in the conflict for years, which has been a steady expansion of the Taliban's influence. And as difficult as that is to measure, what is much easier to measure is how much influence and authority the Afghan government has lost. It's just not able to keep up its presence in rural areas. And also, from a military perspective, it's not able to maintain a safe passage through most of the country's major roads. And so if you were to sort of summarize what these dramatic gains across, as you say, much of the countryside, what do they mean for the, for the war and what do they mean for the Afghan government itself? Often media have portrayed the sort of Taliban advances as this sort of inexorable uh, military juggernaut encroaching even potentially on, on, on Kabul. Is, is that sort of overblown or how worried should we be for the, for the survival of the government? Right. There are absolutely narratives, some of them promulgated by the Taliban itself, 
hoping to advance a, a narrative uh, of, of the inevitability of their victory and, and of their superiority over the Afghan government and its military forces. When we ask whether or not this means the collapse of the Afghan government is imminent or if the Taliban is a juggernaut that is ready to take over the entire country, we're not at all at that point yet. Um, first of all, in many of these places, the Taliban has advanced without much of a fight at all. We're not talking about military prowess, perhaps in a majority of the locations that the Taliban has now moved into and where Afghan security forces have left. In many cases, this was uh, surrender or abandonment of post or even at times uh, negotiated understandings between local authorities, elders, and stakeholders. Uh, why are we seeing Afghan troops either retreat or surrender or fall back? It's a combination of reasons, none of which suggest that the Afghan government is on the edge of complete collapse or that Kabul itself is in danger of falling in the weeks or months to come. Uh, we do see these media narratives of Taliban strength, of abandonment by the United States and its NATO partners, um, and, and a, a mass psychological impact of the U.S. withdrawal really playing out on the battlefield, much more than any uh, substantial change to the military strength of the insurgency or, or the government forces. What we're seeing is evidence that the Taliban is pursuing an integrated political military strategy, not just a military strategy. And they're doing it at the local level, at the national level, and at the international level. Uh, and they're having success in all three of those dimensions. At the local level, we see them not only fighting for control, but negotiating for control with local elders, uh, with Afghan security force elements, getting people to uh, lay down their arms and uh, go home. Um, this is not universal, but we are seeing, in, you know, we are seeing evidence of that kind of strategy at the local level. At the national level, we see them reaching out to uh, President Ghani's political opposition and potentially laying some groundwork for eventually peeling away uh, um, influential Afghan political figures into some kind of ultimate settlement when they've gone far enough militarily uh, in order to consolidate their control through negotiation as well as through fighting for control. And at the international level, we see them very active in pursuing their you know, foreign policy, if you want to call it that, of uh, assuaging concerns of neighbors in recent days, trying to assuage concerns of, of uh, Beijing um, and uh, demonstrating or trying to, to convey an appearance of the, themselves as the inevitable rulers of Afghanistan who will govern the country in a way that shouldn't raise any concerns from neighboring states and near neighboring states. The question is, 
even though we're seeing success in all these dimensions now, politically, militarily, and as I said, you know, uh, at the local, national, international level, the question is how far are they going to be able to go? Is, is the Kabul side of this equation going to hold together politically? Are the relative strengths that they have militarily going to, um, if they haven't been able to hold off the Taliban advances we've seen so far, are they going to ultimately be a significant limiting factor on Taliban ability to take and hold urban territory? What happens to morale inside the Afghan security forces? What kind of signals do um, other governments around the world um, send? And we're seeing a mixed picture on all of these variables now. I mean, just to, to point to one that was a little surprising to me that I saw yesterday, you know, the British Defense Secretary saying, well, you know, we're prepared to work with a Taliban-led government uh, as long as they don't too seriously violate human rights, as if like some violation of human rights, well, that's okay, but not serious violation of human rights. It may be true that many governments around the world will ultimately adopt such a policy, but what was the point of sending a signal like that now? But we're, we're seeing a proliferation of mixed signals that are going to interact with these kinds of variables that we just talked about. And let's uh, let's come to the the sort of international politics in a moment, and as you say, the Taliban's outreach to to in particular Afghanistan's neighbours. But could we sort of move to the Kabul side and the the, the government side? President Ghani has struck so far sort of quite a belligerent tone. He said that the Taliban are they're not holding areas. You know, he's projected a, a confidence in the Afghan security forces to repel the Taliban from sort of any serious uh, encroachment on on at least on bigger cities. But, you know, do you get the sense that his government is worried by these sort of dramatic gains the Taliban has made recently? Yes, Richard, we in, in speaking to government officials, uh, political figures that are close to the palace uh, and, and observers in Kabul, what we do understand is there is a, a real sense of alarm. Unfortunately, that has come far too late. Some media reporting noted that senior members of Ghani's government warned at different stages last year that the possibility of rapid Taliban advances needed to be considered and that a dramatic shift in the government's military strategy should have been undertaken as of last year. Um, but again, according to these reports and what Crisis Group has been told, those proposals were rejected out of hand. However, in spite of what's being said publicly, there does seem to be a private acknowledgement of how dire the situation is that seems to be reflected in President Ghani and his top officials' interest in visiting Washington, D.C. and gaining public audience with President Biden. The source of Ghani's government's legitimacy has always tilted in, in, in favor of the international recognition. Uh, the domestic sources of his legitimacy are, are narrow and specific and, and not wide reaching. And so just one last question on what's happening in Afghanistan before we move to, 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 to Washington. But Laurel, I mean, you described it very well, the sort of Taliban strategy in Afghanistan on the national level of attempting to peel off power brokers away from the government. I mean, it's sort of a paradox that for many years, that's been the government's approach to the Taliban, that they've been trying to splinter the movement sort of unsuccessfully for many years. And now the Taliban is sort of trying to do this to Ghani and, uh, and the government. Do you think that they're going to have any success? It's 
perfectly possible to me that uh, the Taliban will have some success in this strategy of division. It depends on how developments unfold on the battlefield and, frankly, how uh, desperate the Afghan Republic side, the Islamic Republic side of this equation becomes, how dire the circumstances, how far the Taliban advance on the battlefield. It's long been the case that the Achilles heel for the government side has been its difficulty in sustaining unity. Uh, and it's also on the, uh, on the flip side, long been the Taliban's comparative advantage uh, that they have remained uh, on the whole cohesive. It doesn't mean there are never any divisions or differences, but they have they have recognized that as their own comparative advantage and have often taken steps to bolster that cohesion. But it's also the case that um, it's harder to be a government, even a somewhat you know, democratic, let's call it a, a um, nascent um, democracy, uh, not a perfect democracy, but it's harder to be a government and a more or less democratic government than it is to be an insurgency. The burdens of governance um, challenge cohesion in a way that fighting an insurgency doesn't. And the requirements of trying to maintain a degree of control and service provision throughout the country are much greater than the challenges of being an insurgency that can sort of pick and choose where it it utilizes its resources and capabilities and exerts its influence. So this is why there's some uncertainty about how far this dynamic of Taliban ascendance is going to go, because they have not yet had to face the challenge of holding territory and governing more than in a very decentralized kind of ad hoc uh, you know, ground level way in rural areas. Um, and how are they going to perform when they face that challenge? So let's shift to uh, to Washington. You know, obviously, this is a not an entirely unexpected decision by President Biden, but still a, a big decision. How do the president and sort of his senior officials, how do you think they're sort of looking at what's happening now in Afghanistan? How much is there a sense of nerves in Washington, do you have any sense that, you know, there's there's any chance that this would sort of change people's minds about the, the sort of withdrawal decision or about the U.S. policy looking forward? I don't see any indication that it's going to change minds for any foreseeable future about the decision. Uh, I think the focus in Washington, it's more about implementation of the decision all of the energy is being poured into that in Washington. So the main topics of discussion, debate, and activity in Washington are centered on the question of visas for Afghan interpreters and other Afghans who worked for the U.S., protection of the embassy in Kabul, how can that embassy be sustained, and in connection with that, uh, security for the international airport in Kabul. But that's not really, a, you know, keeping an embassy open and providing visas is not a policy. I, I think, you know, what you also see here in Washington is that 
there is among uh, American policymakers and decision makers an attitude of they don't want to talk about Afghanistan. They don't even seem to want to think about it too much. And frankly, President Biden has been quite explicit about that. There are higher priorities for the U.S. administration now. And those include competition with China, dealing with the COVID crisis, um, cybersecurity, and climate change. Those are the ones that he specifically mentioned. And there's been plenty of evidence that those are the topics that are on the minds of American policymakers. And I think this leaves it quite uncertain or unclear um, what the policy will be looking ahead. And questions like, um, what objectives, if any, does the U.S. have in not just in Afghanistan, but in the region in the aftermath of the withdrawal, other than just making sure there's no terrorist attack from Afghanistan. But even on the question of counterterrorism, um, what is it that uh, the U.S. will now regard as um, the kinds of targets that it would go after. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about setting up counterterrorism capabilities in the aftermath of withdrawal. There's been almost no discussion about what those capabilities are going to be used for um, and why. Um, what kind of relationship does the U.S. want with Pakistan in the aftermath of the withdrawal? I haven't seen anything said about these matters. Um, what the U.S. has said is that it will continue to provide financial support to the Afghan government and that that means that the U.S. is not abandoning Afghanistan. The actual meaning of the decision to withdraw is that the U.S. is prepared to tolerate, not want, of course, but to tolerate uh, the potential fall of the Afghan government to the Taliban and the potential demise of the current state system there. If it was a U.S. policy objective to prevent that potential outcome, knowing that that is a potential outcome in Afghanistan, then the U.S. wouldn't have pulled out. And t tell me if this is wrong, but doesn't a lot, though, hinge on the continued support and funding, especially continued financial support to the Afghan state and the Afghan army? So although you know, it's not going to deploy more troops to stop the Afghan government falling. But the funds are still going to be really, really important to sort of stop the anti-Taliban alliance fracturing and big power brokers sort of moving over because they're not getting paid anymore by the Afghan government. Yeah, that's right. It's a mitigation measure. Uh, and it's essential from the Afghan government perspective. But from a U.S. policy perspective, it is a mitigation measure. Um, because the withdrawal decision means that the U.S. will not use uh, its own direct means of trying to prevent certain outcomes, because I think it's been shown that the U.S. couldn't ensure a particular outcome. But because the U.S. wasn't prepared to use its own means directly to prevent um, particular outcomes that it regarded as negative in Afghanistan, it's going to continue to provide financial support to mitigate for that fact by indirectly enabling the Afghan government to hold on so long as it, it can. I think another way to put it might be that funding and uh, not only financial, but in, in many ways, logistical and, and advisory support uh, from abroad is a necessary but insufficient uh, factor in the Afghan government's survival. It absolutely cannot survive without it. We're talking about a government that is 
anywhere from 75 to 80% dependent on foreign funding simply to exist. And of course, its, its defense forces are completely funded by the United States alone. Um, and so that funding is necessary, uh, potentially even with additional funding to tackle uh, new crises as they emerge. What is not clear is if that will be sufficient on its own to hold the government together, especially after what we've seen in terms of military performance and, and battlefield developments in the last few months. And could I just ask a very practical question about sort of this amount? I mean, we're talking billions of dollars of U.S. funding. I mean, without U.S. personnel there, I mean, is there a sort of practical or accountability or something in Congress? I mean, are there issues to giving that much money? I mean, there hasn't been an awful lot of oversight in the past, but without any sort of oversight in how it's spent, is, is, is that is that going to be a problem? I, I mean, I do have some concerns about how long Congress is going to continue to appropriate this degree of money. If as and when, you know, stories begin to emerge about wastage of the funds, which will surely happen because it always happens and it's not unique to Afghanistan. I think you could say that U.S. agencies kind of got away with a fairly limited degree of ability to provide oversight in recent years of how money was being spent, not to say that they didn't you know, do their best to come up with that kind of oversight, but the fact that there are not going to be as many Americans on the ground, even if it doesn't really change the degree of oversight, it may change congressional um, perceptions. And in the aftermath of the decision to withdraw, we've already seen questions being raised by the U.S. Congress about how is the money going to be managed now. Uh, the longer we go without U.S. forces on the ground, the more uh, the more doubtful I think it is that we'll see the continuation of this level of financial support. Could we talk a little bit about prospects for the peace talks that are supposed to be ongoing between the Taliban and representatives of the of the Afghan government in Doha? Laurel, you sort of laid out very well earlier the Taliban's approach at the moment to gain militarily, but is there going to be a point if the Afghan government can sort of hold the insurgents out of big cities to some degree, check their advance, is there you know, going to be a chance of rekindling those talks and both sides coming back to the table sort of in a more serious way? Uh, unfortunately, my own view is that it's unlikely that there will be any serious effort at negotiation until the Taliban has gone quite a bit farther in testing its strength on the battlefield. If you look at their behavior and you also consider simple logic in the circumstances, why would they be serious about making any kind of compromises at the present time? There's just no indication that uh, that they would do that, and I uh, and it's not it's not logical from their perspective that they would do that. I think the best hope for a real peace process, or at least one that you know reaches an actual political accommodation that stops the fighting in Afghanistan, is that the Taliban are 
persuaded to or they themselves decide to not try to go all the way militarily to take total control of the country, but that they decide to only go so far as they judge they need to in order to dominate at the negotiating table and then reach accommodations either with the Afghan government or going around the Afghan government by peeling away other power brokers and simply marginalizing the Afghan government. Not to pile on the pessimism, but there are a few other points of concern just to boost Laurel's point. One, you you asked about uh, the eventuality where the Afghan government strongly defends population centers and keeps the Taliban from taking any Afghan cities. At this stage, it's not clear whether the Taliban's strategy is actually to take cities by force. And in fact, what we've seen unfold across the country, in particular as the Taliban appears to be targeting major border crossings and and, uh, dry ports that supply the country, uh, a landlocked country, only by land routes, the Taliban don't have to militarily take over any of Afghanistan's cities in order to pressure the Afghan government, uh, potentially to the point where they can no longer provide for the citizens of those cities. Because the Afghan government at this point can no longer drive either by military or civilian transport from city A to city B, practically anywhere around the country. That level of besiegement by the Taliban may be enough alone. Even if the cities continue to be defended, the Taliban might see a real strength in being able to wait out uh, and and forgive the the phrasing, but to starve out the Afghan government and its supporters. Very quickly to one of Laurel's uh, points, the idea of peeling away other political stakeholders or major leaders in Afghanistan, we already see evidence of a major divergence between President Ghani and his senior officials and most of the other political leadership in the country uh, who seem much more willing to consider uh, negotiation options and, and terms with which they could settle the conflict with the Taliban, when, as you noted from President Ghani himself, we still hear quite a bellicose tone. Although some of his opponents, they have a lot of bad blood themselves with the Taliban, right? I mean, if you think of the former Northern Alliance commanders, some of the former Mujahideen, even President Ghani's predecessor, former President Hamid Karzai, a lot of these people have their own histories with the Taliban. Uh, so, you know, aren't they going to be sort of pretty strong incentives pulling away from the idea of opposition politicians jumping ship and thinking they're going to gain through some sort of alliance with an ascendant Taliban? That's a really great question, Richard, and, and it actually cuts both ways. One question that many people haven't addressed is how badly do the Taliban think that they need some of these power brokers and some of these political stakeholders When you speak to Taliban interlocutors, uh, figures in their political wing or or more intellectual figures, many are incredibly dismissive of uh, former President Karzai's era of governance and of many of the other former Mujahideen commanders who now make up much of the country's uh, political leadership. 
And so it's not clear at all how much the Taliban is willing to offer these figures. I don't think we should imagine that it would be an easy negotiation between the Taliban and any of these figures for a variety of reasons. One is the history that you mentioned, Richard, but also, uh, you know, there are complicated calculations for the other power brokers to make. Where Where is their advantage going to lie? And for the Taliban, you know, you would think that they would only feel that they need to peel away enough support to take the oxygen out of too much opposition to their rule. That doesn't mean that they would go into these negotiations with high-minded ideals of power sharing guiding their decisions. It would be a strategy of diffusing the potential for too much opposition to their rule, no doubt, without an expectation that they can entirely prevent any opposition to their rule, because there will be elements within Afghanistan that will never accept and go along with uh, a Taliban-dominated government. But, you know, if you're the Taliban, you would want to divide these elements to the maximum extent possible so that they can't coalesce in, in, in too much opposition to you. Can we now turn to the region We've always said, and Afghanistan's neighbors, you know, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan, they always wanted the U.S. out at some point, but they were always fairly consistent that they didn't want that to happen in a destabilizing way. Just this week, uh, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi said you know, something along these lines uh, in Beijing, that the U.S. shouldn't shift the burden onto others and withdraw from the country with a mess left behind unattended. Even the U.S.'s rivals, how are they sort of looking at what's happening now in Afghanistan? You know, there's always been some real dissonance in the policy positions of uh, countries like China, Russia, uh, Iran in particular, in that none of those countries have wanted the U.S. to be permanently based in Afghanistan. In a sense, you know, they all... Uh, secretly wanted the U.S. to succeed in Afghanistan, but uh, weren't prepared to invest too much in ensuring that success. And, you know, had the sort of, for a long time, relatively comfortable position of being on the sidelines and being able to uh, hope for relative success on the part of the Americans, but be able to poke the U.S. in the eye as and when it failed. Now, you know, push has come to shove. The U.S. didn't succeed in stabilizing the country. The conflict is as violent as ever. And the U.S. is taking the position, and it's pretty explicit from President Biden himself, of over to you, other countries. And, uh, and you know, it's the, the fears of Pakistan in particular are being realized that they were going to be left holding the bag in Afghanistan. And it's no surprise that they're concerned. It's no surprise uh, that uh, China and others are criticizing the U.S. for the withdrawal uh, and for the aftermath. I expect that we're going to see this criticism only ramp up and certainly make it difficult for the U.S. to try to engage with these countries on uh, on peace process or other steps ahead. Um, only maybe will these perspectives enable 
uh, these countries in the region to cooperate with each other in support of uh, a more stable outcome. And when you say a more stable outcome, do you think there's a sort of strong preference? I mean, presumably different views from different capitals, but sort of overall a strong preference among Afghanistan's neighbours for the sort of current straight structures potentially with the Taliban brought in? Or do you think that people would be pragmatic if the Taliban were to succeed and sort of form some some sort of power sharing arrangement with other with others? I'm not sure there are very specific ideas among these governments as to what what it all looks like in the end, a more stable outcome. I don't think any of them, um, certainly not their their own experts within their governments, have any illusion that there's an option of keeping the state system as it is now intact and simply giving some positions to the Taliban, at least not under the current battlefield dynamics. That is not realistic. You're not going to find China and Russia saying you must have democracy in Afghanistan. So any kind of cobbled together um, political arrangement, even if it puts the Taliban in a dominant position, but that includes enough of the other elements of the Afghan political and ideological spectrum that Afghans themselves can say, okay, that's good enough. We can live with this system. I think that's what will be good enough for the region. Richard, just to jump in with some perspective from the ground, it was only earlier this year that serious Afghan political figures were telling crisis group that some of Afghanistan's neighbors could be major sources of support depending on what the Biden administration chose to do in terms of withdrawal, in terms of continued funding to the state. And indeed, some of these political opposition uh, stakeholders we've been discussing were looking to regional neighbors uh, and, and revisiting historical analogies of Russian, of, of Iranian and of other neighbors support uh, to help them fight the Taliban in the 1990s. The Taliban have now swept across the country's northern half so rapidly uh, to include major border crossings that that's no longer feasible. Even if these countries had a strong preference to back local anti-Taliban forces, there's just no real uh, effective defense uh, that can be mounted anymore. So you've both painted, you know, I think, an extremely bleak picture of what the coming months hold. Could you, uh, Andrew, just sort of talk a little bit about what the mood is, you know, not just in Kabul, in other population centers? Everyone is worried right now, Um, not only from the uncertainty, but already from the impacts of the conflict and how it has re-intensified since April. Already we're seeing several hundred thousand people displaced since the beginning of this year. Um, This is while uh, Afghanistan and the region continues to grapple with COVID in a major way. Uh, And that sort of displacement is also a public health risk, among everything else. Um, We have prices raising in local markets. We have basic goods and commodities being shut out of some areas, uh, urban centers and rural remote districts. All of this is due to the fighting that's taking place. And there's every indication that the Afghan government is going to be desperate to counterattack and demonstrate its strength, which, whatever that means for the government's survival, is sure to be devastating to Afghan civilians' lives. For those who have not been living under Taliban influence or control, we're already getting reports from around the country 
that whatever the Taliban's political office may be saying uh, on on international media outlets, there are many Taliban commanders on the ground and fighters who are already enforcing a more draconian set of social norms and are already implementing the kind of everyday local authority that many Afghans have been afraid of uh, for some time. So, Andrew, Laurel, if we're thinking of the months ahead, what are some of the things we should be watching for that are going to give a sense of what direction things are going to take, you know, how, how bad it's going to get? Look, on, on, on the battlefield, uh, one major indicator is going to be Number one, whether or not the Taliban actually do make pushes uh, to try and sweep into population centers. If we see what looks like attempts to not only take, uh, not only to overrun, but to capture and then hold urban areas, that will tell us something different about the Taliban's approach and maybe indicate a new phase of the conflict. If that happens, the next thing to watch would be the Afghan military's performance. In spite of how unprecedented the changes in territorial control have been uh, in the last several months, what has been a historical constant for most of the last decade is that it often takes the Afghan security forces months to recover areas that are very quickly captured by the Taliban. So we do want to be watching closely to see what the government prioritizes as it tries to retake space. Uh, it's already making moves on some of these critical strategic uh, border crossings. Um, how the Afghan government positions itself on the battlefield will tell us quite a bit uh, about what people in Kabul view as important. Yeah, I mean, in slightly broader brush terms, I would say that the three most likely scenarios ahead are one, that the Taliban uh, achieves significant military dominance, but not complete control, and that there is continued resistance. And so that you have a civil war ongoing with a, uh, a dominant Taliban. A second scenario is that you see a protracted civil war without clear dominance on one side or the other, if the Afghan government forces um, rally and uh, improve their performance, and it, if not change, essentially uh, stall the trajectory that the Taliban is still on. And then the third scenario is that the Taliban goes so far militarily that they dominate on the battlefield and then turn more seriously to trying to negotiate terms for a political settlement, but in conditions in which they're able to convert their military dominance into political dominance in a negotiation. From the perspective of how many more years of intense, deadly conflict are we going to see in Afghanistan? How many more people are going to die and suffer as a result of deadly conflict in Afghanistan? I think you can say that the third scenario is the best possible in the circumstances, that the Taliban go further, but not all the way, and then engage in a serious negotiation. But what's better for Afghanistan among these different scenarios? I, you know, I, um, 
decline to give a judgment on that because there's really there's so much at stake for Afghans as to what kind of a system uh, they want to live under that, um, you know, it's not for me to have a view on that. Laurel, to follow up on that, I mean, if you're a Western policymaker sitting in a capital a long way from Afghanistan, you hear us talking about it like this. I mean, it's it's a very bleak picture. I mean, the temptation is to sort of wash your hands, let the chips fall where they may, and then let the region, let Afghans themselves deal with the consequences. But presumably, as you say, if the best scenario is some sort of equilibrium and getting back to peace talks, what's critical is that that doesn't happen, that people do stay engaged, that they try to keep as much as possible the funding coming in, the state standing in the hope of getting back to talks at some point. I mean, is, is that right? I think that's right. I mean, you want to, you know, if and when you get to the point where the Taliban have made the calculation, we've gone basically as far as we can go and now we're ready to talk. Um, you would, if you're a Western policymaker, want to see the government side um, as strong as it can be in those circumstances. Uh, and it's only in that scenario where as an outside actor, you can really see some clear opportunities for trying to shape the outcomes at the negotiating table. But clear but limited opportunities. I mean, I think it's going to be hard for outside powers, particularly Western governments, to really shape the terms in a negotiation like that. They're leaning very hard right now, the U.S. government in its public um, rhetoric and other Western governments, too, on this idea that the Taliban want legitimacy internationally and continued financial assistance, and therefore they're going to be subject to influence about what the terms of an ultimate deal um, might look like. I think that's a pretty weak form of leverage and a pretty narrow space within which to work because, of course, the Taliban want those things. There's no question about it. They want the legitimacy. They want the money. They've made that very clear. But what isn't clear is what are they willing to give up in order to get that if they have to make choices? And I don't think they're willing to give up very much to get that. They're not going to give up their their um, policies on women's rights and their uh, and their sense of what is an Islamic system for Afghanistan. Laurel, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks very much to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi, and thanks especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating, review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.